Okay, if you guys have a copy of the Word of God, and I hope that you do, turn it to 2 Timothy chapter 3. As you guys can see, we're, we're not where we would normally have been, and I'll explain why. Um, first and foremost, before I get into this message, I just want you to know that everything that I'm going to speak on today um, is in crash course format. That means we're going to plow through a lot of things at one time. And, and I'm not going to hit every detail of everything. And you're probably going to leave with questions, and you're going to leave with fears in your, in your gut, wrenching your guts because you're afraid of how this is going to apply to us as a church. So this is a crash course. Um, I went to a, a, a conference this weekend, and I had a time where I was able to go with all the men to a lunch, and, and several pastors... Um, gave addresses, and the, the lunch was called Burnings in the Soul. Basically, you just get up and speak extemporaneously about what has just been gripping your heart. And, and, um, and I had already planned on doing this. Um, God gripped my heart Tuesday morning. T- yeah, Monday night, Tuesday morning. And, um, and, and I felt like He was saying, you know what? You know, Matthew chapter 12, the, the section that we're going into is almost the exact same as the section before, so we can take a break and we can look at something that, that's really had a hold of me for a while. I've kind of dusted conversation with this stuff as we've met, but today we're going to hit it full on. Um, I thought about entitling this message uh, Current Events because I'm going to hit just about everything that I can think of. Um, but this is stuff that's been burning in my heart. And before we get to the application, we have to set lay a foundation, a groundwork. Um, this could actually be two sermons put together. And so, we're just, I'm going to read this passage of Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. We're going to unpack it. That's going to be our foundation. And then on top of that, we're going to build um, the application. Typically, I would spend the majority of the time in exposition and three to five minutes at the application. This week is going to be um, half an exposition half application. So, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, if you would please stand in honor of God's Word. Paul is writing to Timothy. And Timothy is a pastor, a young pastor. And this is what he says. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is God's Word. You may have a seat. October 31st, we just celebrated, we typically think of as Halloween. Historically, October 31st is what we would call Reformation Day. It's, it's, in church history, there was a time when the Roman Catholic communion, they're not a church, they're a communion, they're just a group of people who get together who call themselves a church, but they're not a church. The Roman Catholic communion had a monopoly on religion. They took the Bibles from people. They chained them to the pulpit. They left them in Latin. And they told the common person, you can't understand this. You sit down. We will explain to you what it means. And so they would read the Scriptures in Latin, which nobody understood. And then the the priests would teach from the Scriptures. And the people just had to take their word for it. And for the most part, what they'd done was they, they, first of all, they had bad doctrine, bad theology, they took salvation and, and entrance into the church and entrance into heaven and they made it into a money racket, more or less. You could purchase what were called indulgences. And if you pay this much money or, or do this much, um, pray this many times to Mary or, or uh, attend Mass this many times or, or um, take, partake of communion so many times, you are purchasing for yourself righteousness 
then that's how you would get to heaven. If you had a loved one who had gone on, you know, they believe in purgatory. If you had a, a loved one who had gone on, who was in limbo, they're in purgatory just waiting, you could purchase indulgences to buy them out of purgatory and send them on to heaven. That's false. We, we understand that that's not true. And so Martin Luther comes along, and, and before Luther, there had been men who had, who had attempted reform. They had attempted to, to challenge the church, had attempted to translate the Scripture. So Luther wasn't the very first reformer, but he was the first of what we would call the magisterial reformers. And Luther, he was just a monk who worked for the church, began to study the Scriptures, uh, particularly the book of Romans, and he began to see that the gospel that was preached in the Bible was not the gospel that was being preached in the Roman Catholic communion. And so, he made this list. You've probably heard of the 95 Theses. It was just a list of, of questions, of, of debatable topics. And what they would do in that day, if they had uh, these, these types of papers, is they would post them on the church door, and so everybody who would come could see them. And so he nailed these 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, or we might say Wittenberg, Germany, in 1517, October 31st. And this lit a firestorm of reform that began to happen all over Europe. Luther began, and then people came on after him. You've probably heard of John Calvin, uh, people like that, who began to reform different cities in Europe. And the foundation of all of this reform was doctrine. Bible doctrine. And so they, they summarized their, their biblical doctrine in certain ways. And, and you've probably heard, maybe you've heard of the five solas of the Reformation. Sola means alone. And so they began to preach that salvation is in Christ alone. Solus Christus. It is by grace alone. Sola gratia. It is through faith alone. Sola fide. And all of this is to the glory of God alone. Soli Deo gloria. But where did they get that? Where did they come up with those four? Well, the foundation for those four was sola scriptura. That means scripture alone. That's the bedrock of all Reformation doctrine. If we're going to agree on anything, there has to be a standard, a line that we look to and say, okay, that's where we're going to start and we're going to launch from there. And that doctrine was sola scriptura, scripture alone. Not scripture and the Pope, not scripture and church councils, not scripture and tradition. Scripture alone. And they believed as we believe, and, and we've, you've heard this, this language, we, we are a reformed Church. That means we trace our doctrine all the way back to that point of the Reformation because we believe at that point they began to reform the church back to a biblical standard. Now, was the Reformation finished? No. Is the Reformation finished? No. We believe in semper reformanda, which means always reforming. Anytime we see something in the church world or in our church, or broader evangelicalism, and we say, well, that doesn't line up with the Scriptures. We reform. We change. <laughs> and so they began the Reformation, and, and what they believed is because God's Word, or because Scripture is God's Word, and God is inerrant, He cannot err, then all of Scripture is without error. There are no mistakes. There are no contradictions. Anybody who says, well, there are all these contradictions in the Bible, you can say, show me one. After 2,000 years, if there are contradictions, we would have given up a long time ago. They may look, they may, may be apparent contradictions, but they can be worked out and you just have to understand the time frame in which the Bible was written. You have to understand the liter literary style in which the Bible was written in, in those days. But it is without error. There are no contradictions, no errors. Because God is infallible, then His Word is infallible. It, it cannot fail. It is true and right in everything that it addresses and in everything that it touches by implication. It's right and true. And we also believe, as the Reformers believe, that Scripture is totally sufficient. It is the sole, final, necessary rule for all of life and godliness. It's sufficient. It is enough. 
It's adequate. It is plenty. It's actually more than enough. We'll spend our whole lives and never get this right. But we'll keep trying. It is all that we need, completely sufficient. Now, a lot of people say this. They say, yes, we believe Scripture is sufficient. But they don't live it out. They don't live it out because they do things in their lives and in church life that are not from Scripture. Their foundations are not from Scripture. And when you do that, you say, well, Scripture doesn't help me in this, and so I have to look elsewhere. Scripture's not enough, and so I have to come up with my own ideas. And so we must be careful when we say we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture and yet live a life that, is, that, that proves what we say we believe is, is not so. In Ephesians 2.20, we read that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Apostle and prophet, those were both teaching, preaching jobs. That was the Word of God. As it went out, the foundation was laid for the church. And so Scripture, when it comes to the local church, Scripture is the guide for everything that we do. Not Scripture and culture, not Scripture and opinion polls, not Scripture and pop psychology, not Scripture and Rick Warren, not Scripture and Bill Hybels, not Scripture and the Southern Baptist Convention, of which we are a part. If they say something, they say we should do something, and the Bible proves them wrong, we say, no, you're wrong, change. That's the church's job. It's Scripture and Scripture alone. So because we believe that Scripture is all-sufficient, we believe and we operate by what is called the regulative principle of worship, which states, it sounds like this, whatever God has commanded us to do in worship and in church life, we do. That's simple. Everybody agrees with that. If He says do it, we do it. But the other side of it is, whatever God has not commanded to be done in church life and in worship, we don't do. So when people say, why don't we do this? And we say, has God commanded it? Well, no, we just thought, it would. sorry, He's not commanded it. We, we don't do it because Scripture is sufficient. We believe in sola scriptura, Scripture alone. Now we're moving to this exposition of this passage, and this is where we get this doctrine of Scripture alone. First, or 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, first thing he says is, all Scripture. That means the totality. We might say tota Scriptura. It's not just Scripture alone. It's all of Scripture. That's why we preach straight through books of the Bible, verse by verse, word by word, line upon line. It's all Scripture. And when he says Scripture, that, that word means the writings, the Bible. Now, I'm not going to go into an apologetic on, on how, we, how, this, how the New Testament fits into this, but it does. When Paul was writing, all he had was the Old Testament. There are writings in the New Testament that, that take the New Testament and put them together with this. And so we say, from Genesis to Revelation, every page, every word, every book, every chapter, every verse, every dot, every iota is God's Word. Every bit of it. All Scripture. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word. We don't skip words when we're reading. So he says, all Scripture is breathed out. The word is theopneustos. It means God, theopneustos, comes from panuma, meaning breath or spirit. It's, it comes from His mouth. It, it comes forth from God. That's why we say Scripture is the Word of God. Because it comes from His very breath. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And He says, breathed out by God. Now think about this. God, the just and gracious Creator, Sustainer of all things. Eternal, never changing. He, he's omniscient. He's never learned anything. <coughs> You know that God can never learn anything. He, he already knows all that there is to know. He, 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 he contains all knowledge. He's all-powerful. He's never grown in strength or diminished in strength. All power and all strength comes from Him. He's perfect in holiness and righteousness. This God breathed out the words of Scripture 
And that's what Paul's saying. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It is His Word. It's true and right. It never changes. It has the same characteristics as God. It's eternal. It never changes. It has the power to create and to destroy, to sustain, to uphold, to uplift, or to tear down. God says in, in the Psalms, I've exalted above all things my name and my word. They're together. The name, the reputation, the fame, the glory of God is equal with His Word because it proceeds from Him. And, he says, it is profitable. That is, it is advantageous. It's useful. It's beneficial. This is like a tool that is made for a specific job. It's just the right thing. Okay, so if you go to a, a, a tree and you want this tree cut down and somebody hands you a screwdriver, that's not going to work. If they hand you a hammer, you can beat at it for a while, but that's not going to work. But if they hand you a metal blade that has a, a serrated edge and those teeth are just barely off from one another in a zigzag pattern and it's got a wooden handle, you take that saw and put it in the hands of a man who knows how to use it and that tool is just right to saw through any tree. It may take some time, but it'll go through any tree because that is the tool that is made for that job. When Paul says all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, that's what he means. It is the perfect tool. It's the perfect thing. It's profitable for... Here's what God's Word is useful for. It's four things. And I don't think this is an exhaustive list, but this is the list we're going to look at in this passage. It's profitable. It is the perfect tool for four things. First, teaching. That means instruction or, or direction or guidance. Some translations say doctrine. Scripture is profitable for filling up in your mind where knowledge lacks in the areas that it addresses. Will Scripture help you with your multiplication tables? No. It's not, a, it's not a math book. It's not a science book. It is a, a book, a collection of, of writings from various men put together by God. It's God's Word, and it tells us who God is, who we are, what we need for salvation, centered around the person and work of Christ, and it teaches us everything that we need to know about all of the topics it covers. Now, there are several places in Scripture where it addresses mystery. And we think, man, I sure would like to know more. You don't need to know more because all that the Bible tells us is all that we need to know. It is profitable for teaching. It sets you on the right course. It outlines the boundaries and the regulations. It is the white line and the two yellow lines and the white line so that you know exactly where to go. It teaches and instructs. It's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof. That word could also be translated rebuke. It is to refute or to convict. To reprove is to declare something guilty when necessary. So if it's profitable for reproof, that means it points out sin. Where there is sin, the Bible will say, that's a sin. It points it out. It reproves it. Or we would say it puts the finger on that sore spot that maybe you didn't know you had. And you say, oh, what, what is that? There's a bruise back there. Like It does that with sin. It points out where there is wrong and it addresses it. So it reproves, but it also, it says, profitable for correction. So it sets back in line where there is error. When you run off the road, it puts you back on the road. It will correct you. It will restore you. It will improve where you have erred. It doesn't just point out the wrong, but it gives the prescription for fixing the problem. It puts you on the path to correct those errors, to right where you're wrong. You break your arm and you go to the doctor and the doctor does an x-ray and he says, yep, your arm's broken. We'll see you back in six weeks. That's not a good doctor. He has to do the hard work of taking that bone and setting it back in place so that it can grow properly. Scripture does that. It points out the wrong and then it sets it back in place and says, here's how to fix it. Here's what you do. It corrects the errors. And the last thing, number four, is it is profitable for training in righteousness. That is, 
It disciplines you for right living. It helps you control sinful tendencies so that righteousness can abound. It's like an athlete or a fighter who trains and practices and and gets their body prepared for action. It trains you. See, righteousness means the way you should be before God, a right way, a good way. And the Bible prepares you and trains you. It is all sufficient to get you ready to stand before God in righteousness. Because we know as Christians, Christ-likeness is our goal. Our goal is not heaven. If that was the goal, we would already be there. Our goal, God is working on us and, and molding us and shaping us and chipping off corners and sanding us down to make us into the image of Christ. That is training in righteousness. So it's all Scripture, every word of it, comes from the mouth of God. It is the exact, perfect, necessary, all-sufficient tool to teach us how we should live, to show us where we're wrong, to correct us where we're wrong, and then help prepare us to be right in the future. Every word of God. In verse 17, it kind of gives us, it starts with the word that. So you know this is a purpose statement, an explanation. This is why we want to be taught and reproved and corrected and trained. Or why the Scripture is good for this. It says that the man of God. Now, I said this is Paul writing to Timothy. This is what we would this is we call this along with Titus and 1 Timothy the pastoral epistles. For me, guys like me, we go to these books to get our job description. This is how you know how to pastor a church, how to lead, what your job is, what your qualifications are. And so specifically in this in the direct context, he's speaking about pastors, the man of God, the leader, but we know that all Christians are held to a godly standard. My standard and your standard is not different. I'm held to that standard to keep my job. If I fall from that standard, you guys can say, out with him, in with a new one. But I can't, when you fall from your standard, I can't say, that's it, you can't be a person anymore. Or you can't be a Christian anymore. The standard is the same. So the direct context is a pastor, but this goes for all people. Every person. He says the reason... The, the purpose of Scripture is that, that, that the man of God, the preacher specifically, but all people of God may be complete. That means capable. The word means qualified. This is like a man, again, who is perfectly suited for a job. Okay? Perfectly suited. You say, I got a job for a guy. He's going to put on these pads and he's going to put on a helmet. He's going to put on a jersey with a number on it. And his job is to just plow through the defense. You're not coming to me for that job, guys. Because I'm not suited for that. I'm not equipped. I'm not prepared. I can't do it. But you get some of these big guys in here, they're made, they would be suitable for that. That's what he's talking about. That you would be qualified. After training and preparation, this man is right for the job. The Word of God does that. So that the man of God may be complete, suited, and then equipped. So the word here means to be finished or topped off. To be thoroughly furnished with all the tools necessary to do the job. Every tool you need. I don't know if you guys have ever had the cable guy come in, but the cable guys, they have this special wrench that's made just for a coaxial cable that fits right around it and tightens it. I don't have one of those tools, and I have to do it with my fingers. And it hurts and it's hard. Cable guy, he don't have to do that. He's got just the right tool. He's, he's, if, his, if he doesn't have that in his tool belt, he's not topped off. He's not equipped. But he puts that in there. He is fully equipped for everything that he has to do along with his other tools. And so when we have the Scripture, when we have the Word of God, we have every tool that we need for, he says, every good work. <laughs> every good work. We're Christians. We want to live lives, and in those lives we perform tasks, and we want those tasks to be done in a good way. We want to be good people. We don't earn our salvation by our good works, but we want to be good people and do good things. And this says, everything that is good and right, that is to be done, commanded by God, can be done with the 
pool of God's Word. It is everything that we need to top us off, to put every tool in our belt to accomplish every single thing that God would ever have us to do, ever have us to know, ever have us to teach. God's Word is enough. So do you see how God's Word is completely sufficient for everything? You see that? Everything. That's sola scriptura. Scripture alone. We don't need to go anywhere else. What it says is true. What it instructs is right. What it reproves is wrong. Where it corrects is always beneficial. And the way it trains and the path it sets forth are perfectly adequate for every single thing we will ever need to do. Everything. That's for life at your home. That's for life at your job. And that's for life in the church. Everything. There is not something in this life that you will approach. And you say, the Word of God can't help me here. We need no other guide. We need no other information. We need no other help. We need no opinions. Now, does that mean we don't read commentaries? No. Does that mean we don't read the Puritans? No. Does that mean we don't read the the Reformers? No. Those people are helpful, but if we didn't have them, if we were just on a desert island with one copy of God's Word, we have everything we would ever need. Everything, or in everything that the Bible addresses, and everything that it touches by implication, it is true and right in the way it addresses it. It is eternally stable. It never changes, all because it comes from the mouth of the eternal and ever-living God. The grass will wither, the flowers will fade, stars will fall from the sky, this earth will be burned up, but the Word of our God stands forever. That's what it says of itself. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we've talked about this, Peter talks about when he saw Christ transfigured with his own eyes. He saw it, and then he says, but we have something more sure. The prophetic Word, which you would do well to pay attention as a light shining in a dark place. He says, I saw it with my own eyes, but what I can trust more than what I saw is this. More sure than I'm standing here in front of you right now, and you're sitting in those seats, is this book. Every single word of it is more sure. It's sweeter than honey. It's more precious than silver. It's more costly than much fine gold. Every word in this book is true and right. If 10,000 PhDs and 10,000 lab coats come to you and they say something that this book contradicts, they are wrong. And this is right in every instance. Now, are we anti-science? No, I think science actually upholds and upgirds everything that Scripture teaches. It's clear. But if it contradicts, we side with Scripture every single time. Now, imagine this. Imagine this with me. We come along, 2010, 2011, we plant a church, you know, Christians are building churches, and, and we come along and we, we assume, you know, with, within this church, there are some things that we just, we're just going to have to do that, you know, God didn't know that we would have to do this. I mean, He wasn't, He, he, he didn't know that He would like it if we do this when it comes to worship. Oh God, you're going to like this. You don't know it yet because you didn't put it in your word, but you're going to love it. Or, you didn't know that you needed it in your church to help the church grow. You, were, you weren't aware of what the culture would be like in 2014. And so, God, we're just trying to help you out here. You left some stuff out. And we need, to, we need to help you out with this. How absurd is that? How crazy is it for us to come along and say, God, your word is insufficient. Allow us to help you. That's absurd, isn't it? That's crazy. It's crazy talk. Now, here's a question. Who then are we going to listen to? As a church, we're not all, not everybody's here, but we got a good group here. Who are we going to listen to? Men, who are you going to listen to to tell you how to lead your family and guide your family? Who are you going to tell you uh, how to work your job or, or what kind of a worker you should be? Culture? The sitcoms? The magazines? Or God's Word? What's it going to be? As a church, who are we going to listen to to tell us what we should do when we come in and when we gather and when we worship and when we preach and when we meet outside of this room? Culture? Opinion polls? Magazines? 
Popular evangelicalism, which by the way, I learned this weekend, if the trends continue, evangelicalism as a, a thing will not exist in 18 years. We call ourselves evangelicals. It won't exist. It'll be gone. So who are we going to listen to? Who will Axis Church of Taylorsville look to for instruction on what we should do when we worship and when we gather? Who's it going to be? I'll let you guys answer. God, the Word. Thank you. I was hoping we would say that. The answer is we will look to the living God. So we're all clear on that. We're going to look to God's Word to tell us what to do. Now, that's sermon number one. Now, I could take that sermon and I could go anywhere in Scripture and point out something and say, here's what the Bible says, and you will say, yes, sir, I will do it. Because we just agreed that whatever Scripture teaches and whatever it implies, we will do it. Now, I could go anywhere, but we're going to go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to go all the way back to the very beginning. <coughs> Genesis chapter 1. Look at verses 1 and 2 to begin with. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now look over at verse 20. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the garden, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now look at verse 20 of chapter 2. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was, no, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Okay. Question, what does God's Word teach us about the origins of mankind? We read these accounts, specifically about animals and, and people. The Bible teaches us what is called theistic creation. That means God created it. That's clear. When we read Scripture, it is clear. God created every man and every woman. Beginning with Adam and Eve, He creates all things. He created all the animals. Every single one of them in their kind. All of them. Now, do we really believe that? Do we actually believe that this God, whom we've never seen, just spoke 
And life came from it? Every living thing? Of course we do. I hope we do. If somebody asks you, do you believe in a literal seven-day creation? You say, absolutely not. He did it in six days. He rested on the seventh. Yes, God created men and women, boys and girls. He still does it. He creates life. Now, if we truly believe what the Bible teaches about creation of man and woman, then should God's Word not be the foundation for everything that we believe about men and women and boys and girls? If He created us, then what He says goes. And what He teaches goes. What God's Word says, not scientific theory, theory, which is... Even Darwin himself changed his mind toward the ends of his life and says, you know, I'm not really sure about all that now that I think about it. It's a theory. God's Word, not scientific theory, teaches us about the origins of mankind and how we should treat mankind and how we should treat our children and how we should think about our children and educate our children and teach our children. It comes from God's Word, not from scientific theory. We're in agreement. So, Here are a few conclusions that we come to when we hold to a biblical view of creation of mankind. If we believe God created mankind the way Genesis describes that He did, then these are some things that we will conclude. First of all, we are created in God's image. Every one of us, every single person that has ever lived has been created in the image of God. Even with disabilities, even with with, uh, slower learning or whatever, you name the difference. Every single human being that has ever lived, ever been conceived on this planet, has been created in the image of God. Therefore, every human life is to be honored and respected and treated with love. Every one of them. And we must listen to God's Word to teach us when life begins and when life ends. That goes for life begins at conception. That goes for life, be- life ends when God stops your heart. I don't care if you're a child who has no say in it or if you're a 29-year-old woman who just knows her life is coming to an end and therefore it should be her right. No, it's not. God creates life. God takes life. It is not up to us to decide when it begins or when it ends. And so we treat one another with love and respect. We, like the Bible says, we love one another. We follow God's created order for men and women in relationships. God created one man and one woman. That was Jesus' model for marriage. I think that should be ours too. We also must follow God's design for child rearing and discipleship of our families. If God created it, God started it, God ends it, God, it's His, He owns it, we are clay, He is the potter, what He says goes, not what we say. Those are conclusions that we come to if we believe what Genesis says. Now here are some conclusions that we would come to if we don't believe what Genesis says. If we believe in a Darwinian evolution, a Big Bang Theory or something like that, or if we even believe in a, a, a theistic evolution where God just got it started, but then He's stepped back and just let, let it go, these are some conclusions that we might come to. First one's racism. Some people believe that there are more than one race of humans living on this planet. There are not. There's one human race. Some people have dark skin. Some people have light skin. There's one race. We call it human. God created one race. But if you don't believe what God created, then there, there are more races than one, and those races who look you know, different than, than the supreme white race, they're lesser. They're mongrel races. We should treat them the same. And... This idea stems from Darwinian evolution. You've seen the picture of the, the animal that transforms into the ape and then the man. That's evolution. There are many of those charts and those were used in religious circles for many, many years because they believed in evolution, that there were some races, lesser races of human beings. If you do not believe in what the Bible teaches about creation, then you will believe in subjective morality. If we're just a product of evolution, if we're just a mistake, there's no purpose, there's no intent, there's no rhyme, there's no reason, then there's no morality. What are we doing here? Let's go home. There's no standard for good. 
We do what we want. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. If it makes you happy, do it. After all, you only live once. Just do it. What's stopping you? Well, I don't want to hurt somebody. Who cares? They're just another mistake as well. Subjective morality. The third one, homosexuality. If there is no standard, if there is no model, if there is no intention, there's no rhyme, there's no reason, there's no purpose, then hey, if it feels good, do it. If you're attracted to a man, go for a man. If you're attracted to a woman, go for a woman. If you're attracted to a dog, go for a dog, a chair, a roller coaster, a building, whatever. There's no purpose, there's no intent. There's no reason for any of this. If it feels good, do it. Or abortion. If there's no creator... There's no rhyme, there's no reason, there's no purpose, there's no intention. It's not a life, it's just a sack of meat. Gouge its skull, suck its brain out, rip its arms off, put it in a bag and throw it in the trash. It's just a sack of meat. It's just going to get in the way. It's just going to get on your nerves. It's just going to be hard to handle. You're not going to be able to hang out with your friends like you used to. Just get rid of it. If you don't believe God creates life, there's no purpose in having it. If it, if it becomes an inconvenience... Get rid of it. Throw it in the trash. End it. The same goes for the other end. Of euthanasia. If you're tired of suffering as you define suffering and you're just ready to go, hey, just end it. Kill yourself. Be done. There's no purpose. You don't mean anything. In the grand scheme of, of this thing that we call life, you're just an accident. You're just a, a, a mishap of molecules and, and atoms that have come together and, hey, your life, end it, whatever. Nobody's going to miss you. You don't, you don't count for anything. If there is no design. Now, these are all easy for us to condemn. Because they seem so blatantly sinful. In the South, in the Bible Belt, on a Sunday morning. The question is, why are they sinful to us? Why are these sins that I've just discussed horrific to us? Is homosexual, homosexuality sinful because that's just gross? You know, I could never kiss a man. Is that why it's sinful? Is racism sinful? Because, well, I have a black friend and he wouldn't like it if you spoke to him that way. Is that why it's sinful? Is, is abortion wrong just because it's messy and dirty and I just don't like blood? Is that why it's wrong? Or is it wrong? Do we condemn these actions because they are rooted in a rejection of God's Word? God's Word says one thing. We don't believe it. We go somewhere else. We build our tower off of that foundation and, and therefore that's right. And we say no, you've built on the wrong foundation. It's sinful because you're building off of the wrong foundation. Christians should feel that way first. When it comes to homosexuality it's not just gross. It is gross and, and disgusting, but it's not just that it's gross. It's sinful because it takes the, the model that God created and it twists it and put it on, puts it on its head. That's why it's sinful. So when it comes to these things, the worst thing about racism, immorality, sexual immorality, homosexuality, abortion, euthanasia, it's not that they're gross, it's that they're sinful. They are a rejection of the Word of God. So now let's look at two more methods, two more things that find their root in evolution. A rejection of the Word of God and an, an adoption of a evolutionary ideology. And let's just see if we consider this as grotesque as the others. The first one, age-segregated teaching. That is, breaking up young people according to their age group and teaching them. See, if you believe in evolution, you believe that there's a process, that we're all evolving. And from the evolutionary process, there became another theory, which is for the most part is rejected and disregarded now. But from that evolutionary process, there came this idea called the recapitulation theory. And that theory says that as a young person, like you guys, as you grow in your state, you're just less evolved than me. You can't understand what I can understand. You're recapitulating or recapping the different stages of the process. So if you go back to that picture of the animal and then the, the chimpanzee and the ape and then the, the man, as you grow, you're recapitulating those different stages. So you're actually less human than me. 
Therefore, you don't grow up, you develop. And you become as developed as I am. And if that is so, then we definitely don't want the less developed hanging out with the more developed because they're just going to hold us back. They're savages. They're not fully human yet. So keep them away. Let us adults, us superior beings, learn. And then whenever you get to our stage, then you can join us. Therefore, we split them up into age categories and we teach them that way. In 1848, that seems like a long time ago, but it's not that long. 1848, we had the first graded school in America. You walk down the hallways, there's classrooms on either side. Put them in their rooms, teach them that way, indoctrinate their minds, then let them out. And until then, education was largely integrated and home-based. But not anymore. Age-segregated education is a byproduct of Darwin's theory of evolution. Just like abortion, just like homosexuality, just like racism. Now, am I saying age segregation is just as bad as abortion? No, I'm not saying that. Is it just as bad as homosexuality? Absolutely not. I'm not saying that. I'm saying they find their foundations at the same place. But they're not just as bad, but they find their foundations at the same place. And so a man named G. Stanley Hall comes along. He's a psychologist. He's an educator. He studies childhood development. And he adopts this recapitulation theory. And this is stuff you can find online about G. Stanley Hall. He, he characterized pre-adolescent children as savages. And therefore, he rationalized that reasoning with them is just a waste of time. Don't even try. They're just they're savages. He argued against intellectual attainment in all levels of education. Don't try to teach them. They can't get it. They're, just, they're, they're basically animals. It says he had no sympathy for the poor, the sick, or those with developmental differences or disabilities. He was a firm believer in selective breeding, forced sterilization. Oh, that woman's not smart. Don't let her breed. Keep her separate. Let's... Only let the smart and strong breed. He believed that any respect or charity towards those he viewed as physically, emotionally, or intellectually weak or defective simply interfered with the movement of natural selection toward the development of a super race. That's what the Nazis did. That's Nazi Germany. Okay, so this man comes along and he begins to implement these things and, and he has a great influence on how we educate our children. How... Do Christians respond? What do we do with this in this time period? What did we do? We did the same thing in our churches. We took our Sunday schools, we broke them up by age groups. Said, you kids, you're not smart enough to learn with us. We began age-segregated ministries where we shoved them in a room by themselves and say, you're not smart enough to hear this. Stay away from us while we learn. Until you get some churches now who have complete separate worship experiences. The young person, the teenager, the mom and dad never worship together because you're just not smart enough. You don't get it. In other words, pre-adolescent children are savages. And therefore, reasoning with them and teaching them is just a waste of time. Age-segregated education. Seventh, Conclusion that we would come to if we believe in Darwin's theory of evolution leading to the recapitulation theory is age-segregated church ministry. Breaking up people according to their age and teaching them from God's Word. It is completely unbiblical. It's based off of evolutionary biology, not what God's Word teaches. It misdiagnoses the human mind and the human heart and it disregards the biblical mandates and the biblical model Age-segregated ministry has absolutely no biblical warrant. You can't find it. It's by definition unchristian. You say, but it works, doesn't it? It works. I mean, we're, they're getting so much smarter. Are they really? I mean, Jonathan Edwards went to Yale when he was 12. Yale University, 12. Our second president went to, I think it was Harvard at 16. Are kids really getting smarter no, it hasn't worked. You say, well, yeah, but the, 
The kids need one another. They need to hang out with one another and learn. You really want your 15-year-old boy learning from all the other 15-year-old boys? That doesn't work. They need mom and dad. They need us to disciple them and train them. And for far too long, the church has taken the discipling of the children away from the parents and said, just let us handle this. We'll take care of this. We're trained. You're not. Go to your room and we'll take them to our room and we'll train them. And it's time that we, as a church, hand that duty back to you as parents on a silver platter and say, please, the Bible says disciple your children. You're the one God created to disciple your children. You're the perfect candidate to disciple your children. Here's your job back. Turn to the book of Deuteronomy with me for a moment. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We'll read some stuff out of this. This is one of those passages that we <clears throat> often go to that, that tells us how we should teach and disciple, what, what the process looks like. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 and 2. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his, his, and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. So we already get this language of generational. You and your son and your son's son. That's three generations. So we're already thinking generational here. They're not even in the promised land yet. In verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your head, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Look at verse 20. When your son, when, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out of there, and that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that He might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as He has commanded us. You get this picture, okay? The purpose of this teaching is for you and your son and your son's son. It's generational. And you're going to take this teaching of God, the law, Moses is about to preach sermons on the law. If you read the, Deuter the rest of Deuteronomy, it's just the law again. Deuteronomy, second law. You're going to teach these things to your children in your house when you get up and when you lie down, when you're walking around in your house. Put it on your doorpost. Everywhere you go, all the time, you're teaching the Word of God. And at some point in years to come, they're going to say, what is the meaning of all this that you've been teaching me? For them, it was that we're going to describe the exodus from Egypt. But imagine you've taught this to your children and there comes a time when your, your daughter or, or your son comes to you and they say, Mom or Dad, what is the meaning of this law? And you can say, there was a time, son, when I was in bondage to sin. I was a slave to my will and my desires. I was a slave to Satan. And God, through mighty acts and mighty miracles, took out my heart, gave me a new heart, and He redeemed me and He saved me. And He will do the same for you, son. That's, what he's, that's what's happening here. That's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Ephesians 6.4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Who is supposed to bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? 
fathers and moms along with that. So, applications. There's several applications. Like I said, this could be titled Current Events. The first one is just way out from left or right field. <clears throat> Vote morals. It doesn't have anything to do with what we're saying, but I just thought it would be timely. Election day is this week. If you haven't already voted, get out and vote. Do your research. Vote based on biblical morals. Who cares how much tax money we're spending if we're taking lives and we're going against what God has commanded? Get out and vote. If I, I've got a list of, I, I got, took pictures on my phone of my ballot. If you want to look at that and write them down, you can. If I knew the names, I would tell you. Now, some people say, well, we shouldn't do that. We need to keep the church and the state separate. Well, that's first of all, that's not what separation of church and state means. Second of all, don't tell that opinion to any of the prophets in the Old Testament, John the Baptist, Jesus, or the Apostle Paul, because they all confronted the government. It is the church's job, as the ones with the key to the kingdom of heaven, to go to the government when they are disobeying God's word and saying, you're running from God's word. It's your job to Encourage good and punish bad, not encourage good. You're sinning, repent. That's our job. And so get out and vote on all these issues that I've addressed, abortion, um, homosexuality, whatever it is, vote. That's your job. Okay, I'll come back into the field. Number two application. Consider how you will educate your children. Your number one job as a parent is to raise up your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, not get them a good education. That's not your first priority. Your priority is that they know the Lord, and that they are raised to know the Lord. Can they get an education in the process? Absolutely. We are to make sure that they, they learn. They have to learn to read if they're going to read God's Word. It is a biblical issue, and it must not be avoided. Paul says we take every thought captive, every thought, to obey Christ. Every thought. Where will my kids go to school? Think about it. Does this mean if you send your kids to a government school, you're going to hell? No. But did you think about it? Have you prayed about it? There, there are options. We don't live off of assumptions. It is our job as parents to think, how will my kids be educated? Thirdly, embrace age-integrated discipleship in the church. Our church, this church, is transitioning and is, I've used this language, we're transitioning to becoming a family-integrated church. That means we will have no age-segregated ministries. We want to see children worshiping with their mom and their dad. And we want to see husbands discipling their wives as Scripture commands. And we want fathers discipling wives, and children as the Bible commands. What this means is we will not make any attempt to form a children's ministry. We will not make any attempt to form a youth ministry. These are both unbiblical. They give no extra benefit. Look at the statistics. We started youth ministry and they've been leaving. It hasn't worked. Youth ministry doesn't work. You say, well, I got saved in youth ministry. Praise God. I know people have been saved in a bar. We're going to start a bar ministry? No, you don't. That's pragmatism. We don't operate that way. Because God can redeem people from Egypt doesn't mean we go to Egypt on our own. It has to begin in your home. Discipleship must begin in your home. So, what is the church's job? We will help mom and dad do this with everything that we're doing. We will help you. We will be right there beside you to give you what you need. We will provide resources. We will instruct you in this. We will model this for you. I've got a box of Bibles that I bought yesterday that are made for this purpose. A stack of books made for this purpose to help you understand and to learn how to disciple your children. But we will not provide a way for you to dodge that bullet and say, well, it's not my duty. I'm going to let the church handle it. We're not going to do it. Because it's unbiblical. You say, well, I don't have time. I just work so much. I can't disciple my kids. Find a new job. Your number one priority is to raise up generations who love the Lord. There are jobs everywhere. You say, well, yeah, but I might not make as much money. Hey, that's fine. Your kids won't, might not go to hell when they die. Is that as important as having toys and all this stuff? Cut out stuff that will amount to nothing 
in eternity. We all do things that take up our time and take up our finances that we don't have to do. And we say, well, I don't have time to disciple my kids. Oh, I don't know how. I'm just not smart enough. But if it was something you wanted to do, you would learn. So we want to help you do that. We want to help you to commit to raising up a generation that knows the Lord and His Word more than they know celebrities and more than they know video games and more than they know athletes and more than they know bands and music artists. We want them to know God's Word. Zerubbabel needs to roll off their lips faster than Eminem or, or whoever. Raising up godly boys and girls who will then raise up godly boys and girls who will then raise up godly boys and girls. In 18 years, evangelicalism is gone. I hope this church is still going to be here in 18 years. Some of us might be in jail in 18 years. But we're going to keep going. The church will always push forward. And fourthly, this is the last application. This is more of a question. Do you really believe Scripture is sufficient? So let's just say that you read 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. You say, yeah, I believe that. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, correction, training, and righteousness. Man of God may be built up, quick for every good work. I believe that. Every word of it, I just believe it. It is sufficient. And let's say you're totally committed to do whatever it takes to, to see to it that the church and, and the family are reformed according to the Word of God. You say, I'll do it, man. I'm on board. Let's do this. You like it. You like the thought of it. You're on board. And let's say that you believe the Word of God is absolutely sufficient to convey us the mind of God on every single issue you can think of, you agree with all of that, well then how is it that you can make it through your daily life with almost no study and no reading and no time in this book? I mean, if this is the tool, and this is the thing that's all sufficient, and this is what we need, and you can make it every day without it, I mean, that's, you're showing you don't need it at all. That's, that's, that's a practical rejection of God's Word. I don't need that. I mean, yeah, it's all sufficient, but I mean, not for me. I, don't, I obviously don't need it. That's a practical rejection of God's Word, and to reject His written Word is to reject the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ. And so, before family integration, we're not going to be known as a family-integrated church first. We are, have always been, and will always be a church centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is always our banner, always and forever. Is a church that has age-segregated ministries, are they just completely wrong and they're all going to hell? No. That's not the most important thing. But as we see things in Scripture that need to be reformed, we will change them. Hey, we're a young, we're a church plant, man. We, I got nothing to lose pretty much in, in all this. I mean, we're just, whatever the Bible says, we're going to do it and we're going to trust God's Word to do it. But if you can make it every day without the Word of God, you may not know Jesus. And so we have to always come back to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And do you know Christ as your Savior? The only way that any of this can be beneficial is if you first know Christ. The Gospel is still central at our church, and that has not changed. And we will preach the Gospel week in and week out. But we will do it also with our children and our families in mind, and we will bring them with us. This is not just infant-integrated preaching. That's typically what we think. Oh, you mean the babies are going to be in here with us? How are we going to listen? It's, that's not the only thing. This is family-integrated church. That means everything that we do as a church, our, our kids are going to be with us, and they're going to watch mom and dad Sing, and they're going to watch mom and dad try to find Deuteronomy in their Bibles, and they're going, to, they're going to hold a Bible in their lap, upside down, because they can't read, but they're going to know this is a time when we sit down and we listen to God's Word. Now, this brings up a lot of questions, a lot of worries, and a lot of, oh, goodness gracious, now I've got to have my kid in here, and what are people going to think? And It starts at home. If you're not taking any time at home, Teach your children, first of all, God's Word and have family worship, which I've got books on that we're going to look at. But the other things like, here's how you sit still. Let's start. Let's just try to sit still for 38 seconds. Let's, here's a piece of candy. I will give this to you if you can sit still for just a minute. Start there and just work. You train them. That, that's called training your children. They learn. 
If you put in a movie, they'll sit still. They know how to sit still. You just got to train them and work them. And those of us who don't have uh, kids or, or, or have older kids, we, just, we, we know, hey, they're kids. Sometimes they make noise. I mean, heaven forbid a kid cry. Heaven forbid a mom get up and rock her baby during the worship service. Oh my goodness, we're going to shut it down? No, that's what happens when you're a family. That's what happens when children are born. By next year, we will have at least five brand new infants in this room. That means there's going to be mom, moms walking circles back here, feeding babies in and out. But we're a church. We're a family of families. And we, we believe that. We support that. You want to have 12 kids? Have 12 kids. We love them. That's what we're going to do. That's where we're moving. It's slow. It's a process. It's going to be weird. But it's a good thing. It's a biblical thing. So if you guys have questions, of course, this is going to be a long process. Write them down. Give them to uh, Zach or Kyle or somebody. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word. Help our unbelief. Help us where we kind of wonder if it's really going to work. Father, help us when we begin to think that we are better than another church because we do things differently. Father, we don't want to be prideful. We're humble. We are those who bow down and submit to your word. And we want to help other people see the beauty of life and the beauty of families and the beauty of children. We thank you for what you're doing amongst this people. I thank you for their understanding.